Amen. Please be seated. Good evening to you. Psalm 95 this evening, our journey through the Scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, and just flag them down, get their attention, and they'll be happy to get a Bible into your hands this evening. And then please, if you don't own a Bible, make that a Bible, Bible a gift from the Lord to you tonight. We remember that the book of Psalms is uh, a book of the Bible, but it is also technically we're studying the Jewish hymnal of the Old Testament. And so these were the uh, things that we're studying as, as songs and as psalms, but they would have sung these in their entirety to the Lord. And so we want to remember that that's what we're looking at here. This is the songbook of the children of Israel in the Old Covenant. And if it produced the kind of emotion that it did, the kind of praise and thanksgiving directed to the Lord through the shadow of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, how much more, I mean, our worship should be in terms of being uh, um, excited and, and as, as Jesus put it, in spirit and in truth in our lives than even the Old Testament saints. But this Psalm uh, 95 is a call to worship and a call to worship the Lord in three ways that are all uh, interconnected, uh, to worship Him with a song, with our voice, to worship Him with our submission and also with our obedience. And one of the beautiful things about this psalm is just the strength and the emotion that is in the psalmist as he writes this in his desire just to bring pleasure to the Lord and ascribe worth to God. And that's what worship is. Worship means literally our, uh, the word worship that's used in the New Testament. It, uh, proskuneo, it means to lean toward to kiss. And that's what we're doing when we worship the Lord. And uh, so it is ascribing worth to Him. It is leaning toward Him uh, to kiss, so to speak, and just to express our appreciation to Him. We are the bride of Christ, and Jesus is the bridegroom. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord, the psalmist writes. And then he says, let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. And so this uh, emotion of it, let us sing to the Lord, exclamation point. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence, and that is going to worship the Lord at the temple, coming to church would be our equivalent, so to speak. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving, and he repeats it, let us shout joyfully to him with psalms, and here are the reasons why, for the Lord is the great God, and the great King above all gods, and in his hands are the deep places of the earth, and the heights of the hills are his also, the sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. And so here we have this call to what really has to be described as a very, very boisterous kind of worship being directed to the Lord. And you look at the strength of the words that the psalmist is using. Sing, shout. Shout is repeated in verse 1, verse 2. Shout joyfully, verse 1 and 2. And so this expression, strong expression of praise and worship being directed to the Lord. And I think that sometimes, you know, we become, when we become Christians, we become a part of God's family, we come out of the world, and I don't know about you, but the only singing I really did before I became a Christian was in the shower, and that was making sure that nobody was in the house just about at that time. I mean, I could do the Four Tops and the Motown hits so off-key, you can't even believe it. But I would enjoy myself. And, uh, and so we really don't... Um, we're not used to singing. And here we become a Christian and we come into an environment like this and so much of a service, really any, any Christian sir, church, is being given over to worship and sometimes people can have a hesitancy related to it. I think about David. Talk about a man's man David was. And yet he loved to worship the Lord. 
and, uh, and to sing to the Lord with shouts and to sing to the Lord with joy and even to couple it with dancing. And, uh, all right, I'm drawing a line on the dancing thing. But there's nothing wrong, and in fact, there's uh, more than nothing wrong with just loud, boisterous, demonstrative, excited, uh, com- coming from the depths of our heart kind of worship being directed toward the Lord. And it's not like we aren't capable of it. We know we're all capable of that. I love the fall, the four seasons of the year. Fall is my favorite. And, um, but I like all of the seasons, but fall is my favorite. And uh, mostly for what is happening in nature all around and just something winding down and, and all the, the, the summer season and the productiveness of all of that and you're heading into another phase and it's just a nice time of the year. But another reason, very carnal, another reason I like fall is because football season starts back up again. I'm not a baseball fan. I try. They get into the World Series. All right, I get excited. So I'm all right. I'm on the. I get on the bandwagon. I'm just not a baseball guy. It's way too slow for me. And soccer's the same way. I'm here to offend everybody that plays these <laughs> sports tonight. So I'm not going to sit there for I don't know how long. I don't even know how long the periods are or anything. And watch that ball get kicked all over the place. And when does somebody get smashed? When does when do when do we get, you know, six points all in one grouping, you know, or basket? So I like these sports that have that kind of action. Though God bless you if you like the other uh, sports as well. But I love, I love college football kicking in, and I love to see the pro games start to, to kick in. And one thing about professional football, and even, and even more so sometimes with college football, is just the, to be impressed with the enthusiasm of the crowd, I mean, how excited they get and, and the roar of the crowd every time uh, their deities do something on the field. So excited. And, and the, the home team. I mean, you've got people that will... I mean, fully grown adults. These are, these are fathers of children and grandchildren. And they wear cheese wedges on their heads in Green Bay. And you look at what people that follow the Oakland Raiders do. They, and, and sometimes in the college games you'll see it's 30 degrees out in some who knows where, Minnesota or something, the game is on, and they've got no shirt on. They painted themselves all gold and all blue with the name of the team and all of them are there. And they're out there for the whole three hours. And, and Fists going up in the air and all the excitement, everybody jumping to their feet and all of the enthusiasm. Nobody complains about a three-hour service there, I'll tell you. (laughs) So I say all of that simply to say that for those of you who are kind of the joyful shouters, who is what the psalmist is talking about here, don't you be influenced by the more subdued even among us in this room Uh, God is worthy of our shouts in worship. He's worthy of us shouting joyfully to the Lord and uh, the fullness of our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength being expressed uh, toward Him. And this kind of joyous celebratory worship isn't forced and the psalmist isn't, there isn't some kind of a thing where he's doing a pep rally here to get everybody all pumped up. This is just what's, what's happening. And, and this exciting, excited worship that's being directed to the Lord is being done so for a reason, because of who he understands God to be. You notice how he describes the Lord there in, in that opening section. He calls God the rock of our salvation, verse 1. God saved us. He plucked us up out of the miry clay and He has set our feet on a rock. We are not the people we would be tonight if He hadn't saved us. Some of us would be unrecognizable tonight apart from God's salvation. He's worthy of having our worship being shouted joyfully to Him just for saving us. If there was nothing else true about him, if there was nothing else about his character to give him praise for. But that's not what the psalmist doesn't stop there. Describes the cause for worship, the reason for worship, 
to shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation, verse 1. And then he declares them in verse 3 to be the great God. He's the great God. Everyone in this world worships some deity. There are no atheists, practically speaking, in the world. Everyone is a worshiper. The only question is, is the one that we worship worthy of our worship? And only the great God, the God of the Bible is. Is that exclusive? Too bad. There's only one true and living God, and it is the God of the Bible. And because He is the true and the living God, He is worthy of this kind of worship. Everyone worships a God in this world. And our God is the master passion of our life, the thing that every single one of the seven billion people in this world, when their feet hit the ground and they get out of bed in the morning and they move out into that day, they do for some reason in the worship of something. It may be money, it may be power, it may be position, it may be self, it may be sex, it may be drugs, it may be sin, it may be whatever. But they are dominated by something to move forward into in, in that day. And no God, in the ideas of the false gods of this world, no one in this world that worships anything else in this world should worship that God with the fervor that God's people worship Him with. Because He's the great God. He's the rock of our salvation. And He is a great God. And he is worthy of great worship from his people. And then he tells us further in verse 3 that he is also the great king above all gods. And he moves on a little bit further down into verse 6. And he's going to speak in a moment of God being our maker and, uh, and that he is our God. So he's not just a great God, but he's our God. I have a relationship with this God. And all of these reasons, the reason that our worship of God should be great is because of a love for God and a love for God coming out of a recognition of who He is and what it is that He has done for us. And so the psalmist describes this great God of ours. He's a great God. He is a great King. And He is worthy of the most enthusiastic worship that we can offer to Him. But worship doesn't just, isn't just include uh, verbally what we do, as important as that is. Worship takes a lot of different forms in our lives. And he goes on to a second form that it takes in verse 6. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Bowing down is a position of humility, of submission to someone who is greater than us. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. And so worship is expressed to the Lord in humility toward Him, and humility He speaks of specifically as being in submission to Him and His Word, surrender to Him. And so sometimes you look and you say, I may not have a great voice to sing to the Lord. Sing anyway. But it isn't just that form. Every time God's will, whether it's revealed in His Word or by His Holy Spirit individually, what He's calling us to do, every time His will comes into my life, He makes it known to me, and I submit my will to His will, He views that as worship. That's an expression of worship to the Lord. And it's a beautiful expression of worship, surrender. I hope all of us are surrendering to God in humility on a regular basis because His will comes against my will on a pretty regular basis and I have a hunch you're pretty much like me. And every time we say no to the flesh in order to say yes to him, whether it has to do with a driver in another vehicle who we don't know at all, 
or whether it has to do with something with our husband or our wife who we live with all of the time or whatever it might do, every time we say, yes, Lord, I will say yes to you and no to my flesh in this situation, it's a beautiful expression of worship directed toward him. But worship also takes another form. He said, went on and he talked about the, the whole angle of obedience. Today, if you will hear his voice... Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, for in the day of trial, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me, they tried me, and though they saw my work, for 40 years I was grieved with that generation and said, it is a people who go astray in their hearts, and they do not know my ways. And so I swore on my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. So he talks about Two incidents in the history of the children of Israel uh, following the exodus, his deliverance of them from their bondage and captivity in in, uh, Egypt. And early on following that exodus, they wanted to stone uh, Moses because they couldn't get any water. And then later on, they refused to go into the promised land and they rebelled against God there under the influence of the ten witnesses who told them, we can't go in and conquer the land. No matter what God says, we can't do it. They believed the false witnesses over God and then God did not allow them to enter into the rest that he had for them, the blessings, the promised land. For us, it represents the life that unfolds to us as Christians as we just simply obey the Lord. God said, I'm not going to allow you to enter into that. Now, it's a fascinating thing to me now why the the psalmist begins this psalm with this great expression here of worshiping the Lord with our voices, joyful shouts to the Lord. And then he moves to submission to the Lord and worship being expressed in that way. And then you kind of think, well, why does he have to end the whole psalm? It's kind of a sour note here a little bit about the importance of obedience and bringing up one of the bad chapters in the history of the nation of Israel. And I think that one of the reasons that The Lord couples all three of those things that worship is expressed to him in song. It's worshiped in submission. It is expressed in submission. It is expressed also in obedience is just to make us realize that it is only as our shouting to him, joyful shouts to him are done and come from our lives coupled to a life of submission to his will and of obedience to his word that what is coming out of our mouth is meaningful to him. And so there has to be the whole package for him to enjoy the worship. There needs to be the voice. There needs to be the surrender, the submission to him. And then there needs to be the obedience. And then he can settle in and he can enjoy the worship. You know who the worship is for? It's for him. Oh, wait a second. Well, I... I go to this church or I go to that church because of what it makes me feel and what I get out of the song part and the worship part of the thing. That's not what it's about. You're never going to outgive God. So anything we do as we worship the Lord, then He's going to inhabit our praises and we're going to be beneficiaries of that. But the worship is for Him and for Him to enjoy it. Worship that comes out of our mouth has to be coupled with a surrendered heart and it needs to be coupled with an obedient life so that he can enjoy himself. Otherwise, he just says, bye-bye, I'll go start another Calvary Chapel elsewhere in town, and maybe they'll worship me in spirit and in truth. And, uh, and then he heads off uh, to do that. We, of course, don't want him doing that, but it's the importance of all three of those things coming together in order for God to receive uh, and enjoy the worship as he desires to enjoy it. Uh, from our hearts and from uh, our lives. Come to Psalm 96, and this is a call to sing uh, to the Lord with a, a new song. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Why would the psalmist call on us to sing a new song to the Lord, except that there is always a reason to be singing a new song to the Lord? He is always blessing us with some new mercy, some new reason for worshiping Him. And so He is constantly worthy 
of our praise. And even if we sing, sing the same song over to him, it's like because of what he's just done in my life, I'm like a different person singing it to him. And so it's like a new song to him and, and to me. And so here's this call to sing this new song uh, unto the Lord. He says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless His name. Proclaim the good news of His salvation from day to day. And then notice verse 3. Declare His glory among the nations, His wonders among all peoples. How? By singing a new song to Him. There is a prophetic element in the worship of God's people toward the Lord. There is something that happens when an unbeliever walks into a church where the Lord is being worshipped in spirit and in truth not just with word, but out of the reality of a relationship with God. When an unbeliever walks into that environment and hears God's people worshiping him in spirit and in truth, that impacts them with a voice from God that's unlike anything else in the world. Do you realize that just, I mean, it was just this last, this last Sunday got a chance to meet a man who was here, and he was here with his mother Sunday morning and Sunday evening. And she's from Egypt, can't speak a word of English, doesn't, not a Christian at all, doesn't, doesn't know anything about Christianity, not from a Christian background at all, came to the Sunday morning service and then asked her son to bring her back for the Sunday evening service. Why? There was something going on between God's people and God that she recognized and wanted to come back and experience and be a part of even if she couldn't understand a word that anybody was saying. That's the power of it. Hollywood cannot, with a budget of $200 million, cannot reproduce what is happening in a room when God's people are worshiping Him in spirit and in truth and then He inhabits those praises. That is holy ground. You cannot reproduce that for any amount of money. God does that. And there is something powerful about it that makes even the hardest heart in the world stop and say, I've never seen anything like this in all of life, anywhere else I've been in life. There's something real that's happening between these people and God. And it has that impact upon them. And it's important to realize that as Christians. Now, the worship team, they've got to give us songs that let us stomp our feet. They've got to give us songs that allow us to shout joyfully to the Lord. That's their responsibility. But if they give that to us, then we have a responsibility to then sing those things to the Lord. Number one, because He is worthy, but, and also because it edifies us. We've been created for His good pleasure. We've been created to worship Him. This is a need that we have in our lives but also for the sake of those that have come into the room and God wants them to hear a relationship between Him and His people that is unlike the experience between all of the other people in the world and the worship of all of their other gods. Do you realize how few religious systems, talking about religious systems, not even talking about pagans, have a worship service and a relationship with God that is expressed in praise and worship. You ever watched Muslims gather together to worship Allah? The difference between the two 
in terms of joy, in terms of life, in terms of a giving and taking, in terms of a reality. This is my heavenly Father. This is a relationship that I have with Him. It's as stark a difference as can be. And you take it all the way through the different religions where worship is going on emotionally toward the Lord on our part, spiritually toward the Lord, intellectually. It's not just getting into some kind. Some people have very enthusiastic worship services and the worship of their false gods, but it's mindless. It's a working up into a frenzy. It's the dismissing of the mind in doing that. It's the worship of the Lord that allows our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength, none of them neglected, to the neglect of none of them, All of them uniting to worship in this way. And God calls us to do that. And I think it's important to realize, and I don't say it as a way to just condemn or anything like that, but when an unbeliever comes into a church like this or any church, and if some percentage of the room is just sitting there silently, not worshiping, the Lord, and they're looking around, and they are looking around, checking it out. And they say, well, I don't know about this, God. Half the people don't even feel compelled to say anything to Him or to worship Him. They must not feel these things toward God. Or it's something that people are just going through the motions on. And to realize that our worship is, as He's speaking about here, The way we worship the Lord, the worship relationship that we have with the Lord is something that preaches to the whole world. And I think that's important to have in the mix in our hearts and to realize. And then he gives us the reasons for why the Lord ought to be have this new song sung to him. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. When you're great, you ought to be praised greatly. And God is great. And he is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are idols, literally nothings. But the God, but the Lord made the heavens, honor and majesty are before him, strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. And then he says, give to the Lord, O families of the peoples, give to the Lord glory and strength, give to the Lord the glory due his name. And we see the repetition of give, give, give. We do not worship the Lord in order to get something from Him. Sometimes you'll hear that. Now, let's praise the Lord. Let's, you know, worship Him. It's a way of buttering Him up so then we can get something from Him. It isn't. Worship is for the Lord. It is to bless Him. We are blessed as a result because we've been created to do it. But there isn't any manip- God hasn't given us worship in order to manipulate Him. All right. I sang your praises. Now, here's what I want for Christmas or for whatever. Bring an offering and come into His courts. Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. And by the way, holiness is beautiful. Tremble before Him all the earth. One of the interesting things about worship under that old covenant is they would begin in the outer court and then they would come into the courtyard and out out, kind of a, court, a close inner courtyard, and then there would be the temple before them or the tabernacle. And then they, as they would see the tabernacle, and the closer you got, you would begin to see all of the fabrics, all of the colors, all of the beauty, the curtains that were made, the blues, the golds, the reds, unbelievable beauty. And the closer you got to the Holy of Holies, the more beautiful the temple got until ultimately everything was just covered in solid gold. And the idea of of this is that the closer we get to God, the more we, we draw close to Him, then, and we, and the, the, uh, and in our worship of Him, then the, the more beautiful holiness becomes. And that's the, that's the way that it is. And the best way that He could define the beauty of holiness under that old covenant was to speak of the beauty of the temple. The definition for holiness for us is a different tabernacle. Jesus came into the world and He tabernacled among us, John said. He is the definition of holiness. And the closer we get to Jesus, 
The closer we become in our relationship with Jesus, the more we come to appreciate the beauty of holiness. And holiness is a beautiful thing. Say to the nations, the Lord reigns. And now as he uh, closes out the psalm, he begins to talk about uh, the, the millennial reign of Christ when Jesus is going to return, set up his thousand-year uh, reign. So looking ahead to uh, the Lord's reign upon the earth, he said, Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world also is firmly established. It shall not be moved. He shall judge the peoples righteously. And so the world during that thousand-year reign is going to be marked by... A, uh, a, a stability that's going to come out of a judgment that is righteous. And so the world is going to be marked by a physical and a moral stability because God's righteousness is going to be established. God's righteousness, obeying His Word, introduces a stability into our lives that we would not otherwise know. Let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad. Let the sea roar and all of its fullness. Let the field be joyful and all that is in it. And then all the trees of the woods will rejoice before the Lord. For He is coming, for He is coming to judge the earth and He will judge the world with righteousness and the people with truth. And so God is going to establish His kingdom he tells us in the psalm, one day it's going to be established and that, that kingdom is going to be uh, established and based upon uh, righteousness and based upon truth. And so uh, all of man's crazy definitions, idiotic definitions of right and wrong and what is sinful and what is not sinful and the dismissing of God's definitions related to all of that. God's going to bring an end to all of that. He's going to bring an end to man's rebellion and, uh, and all of the mountains of victims that these new definitions of right and wrong are producing. And so good riddance, one day it will all come to an end. And then in Psalm 97 is a psalm that is a call to love the Lord and to hate evil. So it begins once again with joy. The Lord reigns, and He does. Let the earth rejoice, and let the multitude of the isles be glad. And so when a Hebrew would write concerning the isles or the islands, he would be speaking about the Gentile world, areas very far from Israel. And so he talks about the fact that the Lord reigns, the earth can rejoice because of that, and uh, even the Gentile world uh, can be glad and rejoice in, in all of that. I don't know that we can be reminded too often of the fact that the Lord is reigning. Behind all of the chaos, or what we think is an apparent chaos of the world all around us, this world is not out of control. It looks like it. The decisions that are being made are dumber than a stone would make on every level. It's one of the problems with being a Christian is the Holy Spirit comes into your life and you see things with a clarity that people that don't know the Lord don't see. And so you say, how dumb can they be? It's frustrating. But it, that's, that's the challenge of opened eyes. And we have to realize we see things. We see implications. We see where these decisions lead. We see where that road leads in a way that people that are not indwelt by the Holy Spirit do not see. It can be a source of great frustration. The frustration becomes too great if we then lose sight of the fact that the one who has given us the ability to see it with that kind of clarity is also in control of the world that he is allowing us to see with that kind of clarity. So he reigns. And this is one of the most important things, I think, byproducts of studying prophecy in the Scriptures. What does the Bible say will be the characteristics of the world morally, spiritually, geopolitically, militarily, financially in the last days before Jesus raptures the church out? 
And if a person doesn't understand that from the Scriptures, it's one thing not to know it because you're a brand-new Christian. It's another thing not to know it and having been a Christian for a long time. I'm thankful that I can read the news and watch the news as a Christian who understands what the signs of Jesus' return are so that as I see those things happening in front of me, they don't make me begin to wring my hands and develop a terminal case of the ancient awfuls. But I look at it and I realize the Lord is very, very near in terms of returning. I don't know the day or the hour, but it's closer than it's ever been, not just in terms of time, but in terms of the development of the whole prophetic picture. And, and so here is this reminder of the fact that even though the world looks like it's crazy, even though it does look like it's out of control, it isn't. It's under God's control. He reigns. Jesus is going to return one day just as he promised, and he's going to establish a kingdom based upon righteousness and and justice in this world. And uh, no matter how wicked the world gets, no matter how rebellious or idolatrous the world gets, that's something that we can rejoice in. God has things under his control. He's moving everything toward his God-appointed end. Jesus is returning, and he's going to keep his promises to us individually while all of that is unfolding. Now, having said that, the psalm also speaks of the coming kingdom age and, and when Jesus will return as well and establish again his thousand-year reign on the earth following the rapture of the church and the great tribulation. At his second coming, he will return. His foot will land on the Mount of Olives. It will split. He will then move into Jerusalem and establish a thousand-year reign of, of peace and righteousness and beauty uh, on, on, the, uh, on the earth. And so he's going to be coming and he's going to be establishing that. And this psalm is a celebration of that as well. No more starvation in the world. No more sex slaves. No more slavery. No more government corruption. No more crime. No more gangs. No more drugs. No more violence. No more war. None of it. All of it gone. The day's coming when right, what is right is going to be exalted. And rather than what is wrong and what is evil and unrighteous, which is being exalted today and in this uh, hour, that reign, uh, perfect justice is going to be meted out. Following this terrible disaster in Connecticut, I don't even remember the name of the town because I didn't want to take the time to even memorize it. You wake up, here's the news, here's this person goes in and just shoots up like that. And then the interviews start. How could God allow that to happen? Why didn't God defend the 20 kids in that room? And it's the ultimate blame shift to move personal responsibility off of us as a nation and a people and to blame shift it and to move it to God. The nation that we live in has become what it has become. And what has it become? Pope John Paul had it right. He didn't have everything right. But he had it right when he said concerning the culture of the West, he said it is a culture of death, and it is from the womb on. The culture that is nourished in the United States of America is a culture of violence and death. And that culture flourishes in this country contrary 
to so many of God's commandments in His Word that these kind of things should have no part of our culture, no darkness, no wickedness, no sin, no evil. But we're smarter than God now. We're more intelligent than God now. And so now we feel that we can pursue those things contrary to His Word, in violation of His Word, and then when the consequences reach to our children in a classroom and they're mowed down, we have the nerve to blame it on God. When the blame lies with every man, woman, and child in the United States of America that nurtures and supports the culture of violence and death in this country, that's where the responsibility lies. And then to say that God somehow failed when He's warned us in His Word, His Word that is thousands of years old, that when you go down the wrong path, even your children will not be spared. But He's going to come back. And He's going to establish a reign in this world that's going to be completely contrary to what we see going on all around us. The Bible teaches that He is going to establish a kingdom age following the rapture, as I said, and the great tribulation, and then following that thousand-year reign of Christ. This fallen heavens and earth is going to give way to a new heaven and a new earth. Someone might say, well, Why the thousand-year reign? Why not just go to the new heavens and the new earth? I think that perhaps one of the reasons is in order for God to show man the potential of the earth if it were not for the sinfulness of man. And for a thousand years, the whole world is going to be fed The whole world is going to be made safe. The whole world will be at peace. The whole world will prosper. And I think perhaps for one of the reasons is is in order to show us that the problems of the world do not have to do supremely with a lack of technologies or the lack of resources or these kind of things, but they exist because of man's sin and man's greed and man's selfishness. And that is why the world is the way that it is, not because of some failing on God's but because of man's rebellion against God. And righteousness and justice are going to be the foundation of God's throne. And because of that, we're wise to make those the foundation of our life as well. He tells us in verse 2, he starts to describe the Lord coming to the world one day and and, in that whole process of bringing in this new Uh, new rain, clouds and darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. A fire goes before him and burns up his enemies round about. He's going to judge his enemies with fire at his second coming. His lightnings light the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax at the presence of the Lord. And the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the Lord, uh, of the whole earth. The heavens declare His righteousness and all the peoples see His glory. His appearing at His second coming is going to have a a great impact upon the entire uh, earth. Going to... People are going to be profoundly affected. And then he'll bring evil to an end, idolatry to an end at that time. Let all be put to shame who serve carved images, who boast of idols. Worship him, all you gods. Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O God. For you, Lord, are most high above all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. And in that reign he will be. And then in verse 10, and it's very, very significant in this psalm, he then tells us what is required in our life as God's people 
to remain holy, to remain righteous, to remain good in the wickedness and the evil that the Bible says will mark the world immediately prior to the rapture of the church? What can keep a Christian safe to keep us from being gobbled up by the power of the culture that is around us, the darkness, the wickedness of the culture on every level? It's so seductive. It so knows how to appeal to the ears and to the eyes and to the mind and to the emotion. How do you stand against it? He tells us how to do it. And he tells us in verse 10, in one sentence, you who love the Lord hate evil. How do you live for God in a wicked, rebellious world? The first and most important characteristic is we are to love the Lord, and we are to love him with a love that is worthy of him. I am to love him with all of my heart, with all of my mind, with all of my soul, and all of my strength. And so are you as a Christian. Do you love him that way? Does a love for God dominate your thinking, your feeling, your doing? Dominate your life. I don't say to condemn. I say to search. When Jesus said that that was what was required in order to follow after God. The man came to him, the religious leader, and said, what is the single great commandment? Jesus said to to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. And the second commandment is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. He wasn't kidding about that. And we have so lowered the standard for the level of idolatry that the average Christian allows into our hearts. I'm talking about myself as well. That we allow into our hearts to compete with God for the highest place in all of those areas of our life and then somehow we read passages about idolatry and think that because there isn't a statue in front of us in the living room that somehow we're not idolaters. To be an idolater is to love anything in my life more than God. You say you're being unrealistic. Then God is being unrealistic in His Word. And I would say that I am being unrealistic except for the fact that his word is filled with examples of so many men and women who so often stood alone, entirely alone, against the culture, but they did it. And it tells us that we can do it as a result. Do we love God that way? Or is he just an appendage? One of the things that I don't like is just a pet peeve on this thing. I'm all, I'm all for having the church open, any church, every night of the year, of, of the week, of the whole year. But I look at what happens in our culture in the last 20 years. Where it used to be you'd have Sunday morning. I know things have changed where people can't always get to all of the services and everything because now we work like maniacs in commercial Babylon and in a way that we weren't forced to in generations prior. So Sunday isn't a holy day for the culture anymore. So a lot of people have to work. And so we've got the Sunday morning service, but that doesn't work for some people And so we develop a Saturday evening service for their convenience. For the person who can't get there on Sunday morning, I say hip, hip, hooray to Saturday evening services in order to meet their needs. That's great. But if you devise a Saturday evening service 
in order to accommodate carnal Christians who are not even willing any longer to sanctify even a morning out of one day out of the week in order to worship the Lord. But now they can fit that service in some little convenient place. We can still go out to dinner. We can go to the church service, still get to a movie and get home on time. Then something's wrong with that. You've got a dumbing down and accommodating of idolatry and carnality in the hearts of Christians that we have to recognize it in our own heart and say, that's unacceptable to me. I don't compartmentalize God and give Him the leftovers of my life. He is a great God. He is a great King. I exist to bring Him pleasure. And whatever that requires to do, whatever sacrifice that means, he gets that. And I just don't fit him in to some 45-minute block somewhere where he can do the least harm to me and my self-will and my selfishness. And I don't even want to get on the subject of selfishness and how that dominates the culture because that will be another hour. Someone said, it takes a passion to conquer a passion. It takes a love for God that is greater than the love for sin in order to stand in a wicked world. Do you have that kind of a love for God? Do I have that kind of a love for God? It's the only thing that will keep us safe. Sometimes people come and they talk to me about a lot of different things, and I'm always glad to talk with people. But sometimes people come and they'll chat about this and they'll say, I've got this going on and then I'm always doing this and I'm failing here. And it's, it's a continual and it's a lifestyle of, of no victory or anything like that. And I look at them and I say to them, you have got to get a relationship with God that is more valuable to you than your sin. You don't love God more than your sin yet. And one of the great protections against being gobbled up by the wickedness around us is to have a relationship with God where, as God is our witness, we love Him more than anything that can be offered to us in this world. And no relationship with God that is short of that will ever keep us safe. Not in what the world will become in the last days. So it begins with a love for God. That is the great single greatest protection against temptation and against being consumed by wickedness is a love for God that is greater than my love for anything else in this life. And God will produce that in our lives. And then he says, not only you who love the Lord, but he then goes on to say, hate evil. We need to not only love the Lord first and foremost, love the Lord with all of our heart and our mind and our soul and our strength, but that love for the Lord is going to produce a hatred of evil in our lives. If there is no hatred of evil in our lives, something is wrong with our relationship with the Lord. I am to hate evil for the harm that it does to my relationship with God. I am to hate evil for what it turns a nation into and what it turns a world into. And that's happening before our very eyes. And I am to hate evil for what it does to people, how it destroys lives. Think about all of the people that you know right now who are being destroyed by evil today. And that is to be our attitude toward evil. I am to hate it, whether I see it in the world or whether I see it in my own heart. And that word hate 
is a strong word. If you think I'm going to explain it away by the original language, I'm not going to. It's, the word hate means hate. <laughs> and it's a strong word, and it's intended to be strong. And hating evil is more than just noticing evil. We pat ourselves on the back because we've noticed evil. It's more than disliking evil. It's more than shrugging our shoulders or being indifferent toward evil. And it's certainly more than accommodating evil or renaming it so that it can exist in my compromised life. The Bible teaches that there are things that we're to recognize as evil in this world and we are to hate them because our attitude toward evil will determine whether we will allow it into our life or not. And it is only a hatred of evil that allows us to have any chance of standing against allowing it to be introduced into our lives. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12, verse 9, He said, let love be without hypocrisy. He said, abhor what is evil. Hate what is evil. Sometimes people say, well, God said hate evil in the Old Testament, but we're under the New Covenant. In the New Covenant, Paul said, by the Spirit of God, abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. And we can't always avoid seeing and hearing and being exposed to evil in this world, though we shouldn't be seeking it out in television and movies and music and entertainment. But one thing we can control is we can control our attitude toward it, and we are to hate it, and we are to hate it as a protection to our own hearts because we're as vulnerable as anybody else to evil and to wickedness. And what is evil? Well, he's spoken of it earlier in the psalm. All unrighteousness, all injustice, all idolatry, all disobedience to God's commandments. That is the evil that he's speaking of. You say that's a pretty broad definition of evil. Yes, it is. It is. Now, some people don't think you... You can hate evil and be loving at the same time, but you can be. And to hate something that is evil is actually an expression of love, not to hate evil. And and then to resist evil, that's the unloving thing to do. And sometimes people think, well, you can't be loving and hate. You can be loving and hate. And in fact, in some instances, you can only be loving as you hate. Hating evil. I think that sometimes people think, well, you can't love and hate at the same time even if what you hate is evil because they immediately equate hatred with physical violence. I'm not talking about physical violence. We don't bring physical violence as Christians against even what is evil. Hatred of evil doesn't always need to be expressed in violence. It can be expressed in prayer, in intercession, in making a public stand for what's right and against what is evil in the culture and publicly rebuking what is evil in the culture. Christ was the most loving person who's ever lived, and he hated evil. The writer of the book of Hebrews, when he writes in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, he ascribes Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7 to Jesus. And here's what Psalm 45, 6 and 7 say. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Jesus hated wickedness. And yet he was the most loving person who's ever lived. And how did he express his hatred of evil? By making a public stand against it. By publicly speaking out against it. Where is our voice against the wickedness of this world? He did it by calling evil, evil, and exposing it for what it was, even when it was part of religious institutions. He did it by pointing out evil to people and then calling on them to repent of that. 
and enter into a life of holiness and to hate evil for what it does to man, what it does to God, is to be like Jesus. And it's a holy thing and it's a loving thing when it's expressed in a way that looks like Him. And then He closes here by giving us His promises to those who choose to hate evil. He said He preserves the souls of His saints. To hate evil produces within our lives a safe life, a protected life. He delivers them out of the hand of the wicked. Hating evil protects us from going into bondage to evil like so much of the world around us. Light is sown for the righteous. It results in a light life, an open life, a well-lit paths and, and, a, and a blessed life. And then he said, and gladness for the upright in heart. It results in a life of joy and a life of gladness. This is what a loving of God and a hating of evil produces in our lives. And he closes now with a final call to just praise the Lord and to rejoice in him. Rejoice in the Lord, you righteous, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holy name. And when he talks about giving thanks at the remembrance of his holy name, the name represents the nature of God. And he reminds us that we are to give thanks at the remembrance of God's nature, of his holiness, and to rejoice in that, and to celebrate that, and then to make that the desire of our heart as well. Well, we'll stop there tonight, but I do want to take a moment or two before we close the service finally and officially to have the worship team come up once again and to perhaps lead us in a couple of worship songs that will allow us to meditate on some of the many things that we've looked at tonight from these beautiful, strong, but needed psalms that we have studied here this evening. So God, may His Spirit continue to work in our lives as we continue to worship Him.